Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Good evening. My name is Jeff Maher from American Physician Institute. Tonight's presentation is Beyond the Pearls High Yield Q&A. Uh, for the Internal Medicine Board. Tonight, our guest is Raj Dasgupta. Go ahead and take it away, Dr. Raj. <laughs> well, thanks, Jeff. Well, and everyone, thank you for being here tonight. For those who don't know me, I am Dr. Raj, and my jam is teaching. I've been doing it for quite a long time. Oh, my God, almost 20 years. I teach USMLE Step 1, 2, and 3, and of course, all these internal medicine board reviews and subspecialty board reviews, and a big thank you to the Bass Machine for just being part of the family. I don't even know how many of these I've done with uh, the past machine. And um, let's get started. And if you haven't noticed, I am just a super easygoing person. So I totally would love for you to ask me as many questions as you want. So we have a 75-year-old gentleman comes to the emergency department with some fever and cough and dyspnea. Stop right there. If I say fever or cough and dyspnea, well, what type of, uh, what are we thinking about? What's gonna be my differential off the bat? Yeah, it's, it's gonna be some kind of pneumonia. I mean, you're coughing, you're having fevers, you have shortness of breath, and patient's feeling kind of faint. His blood pressure at this point seems to be all right. I think many of you would say it's on the softer side. So, of course, what do you do when you have soft uh, pressure is you give some fluids. You got a liter and a half of some IV fluids, and he's on no vasopressors at this time. His baseline blood pressure is relatively normal, 130 over 80. He's tacky, he's tachypnic, and he's 92%, but he's breathing a 50% of oxygen by a face mask. So he definitely is hypoxic and he's having some fevers. He has altered mental status. His Glasgow coma scale score is 14, so it's on the lower side. His urine output via indwelling bladder catheter is low. And so this is going to be a 600 mLs per day. And some of you may be thinking, well, what is normal? So I guess the question becomes, how much urine do you make in 24 hours? And does anyone just want to yell out the answer? I know you can't yell it out, but the answer is around two liters, you know? So if you're only making 600 mLs, you're not doing well from a kidney standpoint. His WBC count is 15,000. His lactate is elevated at 2.7 millimoles per liter. That's the classic units we use in the hospital. 
Serum creatinine is 1.3, platelets are 205, Billy is 1, his P little AO2, the partial pressure of arterial oxygen, is 70, and that's low because he's breathing a 50% of oxygen by a face mask. So they do a chest x-ray, as you should, and boom, it has consolidation really slamming home that diagnosis of pneumonia, which is the correct classification of this patient's condition according to the Sears criteria, the Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. And this was based in around 1992 and reformed in 2001 versus the sepsis 3 criteria. And that was published in 2016. So using, it's a terminology question based upon Sears criteria, what does this patient have? Based upon the sepsis 3 guidelines, what does this patient have? And there are the choices. So Jeff, you could just jump in there. Are we doing some kind of timer action? Should I just kind of count down in my mind or what are you feeling right here? I would say just go ahead and give them a couple seconds to think about it. We should have had some cold play like in the background. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> or maybe some U2 or maybe I'm dating myself now. Maybe that's a little too old, you know? <laughs> so what, what, what do you folks think over there? So the first part of the answer is going to be, hey, let's look at the Sears criteria. So when we talk about Sears criteria, I mean, is this patient going to be in septic shock? You know, I think that's the first thing looking at the choices. And I think most of you are kind of yelling out at me, no, because he's not on pressors just yet. You only gave him a, a liter and a half of fluid. And I agree. I don't think this patient's in septic shock. So when I look at the first part of the Sears criteria, I see severe sepsis, severe sepsis, just sepsis by itself. And of course, there's choice C. This question is too long, and I hope no one picked that. But if you did, I understand. So I think that when we talk about serious criteria, that this patient really has what I think of as target organ damage. And we'll define serious in a second. But you know, um, what target organ damage does this patient have? Yeah, mental status changes urine output, his lungs, I mean, he has multiple target organ damage here, right? So I definitely feel like he meets something that starts off with severe sepsis. Now, when we use the sepsis three criteria, once again, is, is this patient in shock? I don't think so. Once again, he just got a liter and a half of fluids, you know, so I wouldn't use septic shock anywhere on here. So when I look at the sepsis three criteria and the different choices, well, you're only allowed two choices based on the sepsis three criteria, and that's going to be sepsis or septic shock. So by process of elimination, I would say this patient has choice B, severe sepsis by serous criteria, and just sepsis by the sepsis three criteria. The right answer is going to be B is in boy. So I'm just fired up for this because this is what I want to talk about. Sepsis and all these different criteria out there. So when you think about sepsis in general, I think that the two things that jump to mind is you're going to have an infection. And sometimes we call that a presumed infection. Of course, all of us like to have a positive culture. This infection could be in the lungs. It could be a positive blood culture. You could be bacteremic. Or you could have a urinary tract infection that's complicated. You could have pyelonephritis. And of course, I'm always using the word bacteria, but who knows? Maybe there's a fungus. You're a fungemic. Who knows? There's a parasite in there. And of course, with COVID right now. So, you know, sepsis means infection. And of course, you know, a big part of that 
sepsis is really having this target organ damage. And it's really paired up nicely here. I put down the lungs, pneumonia leading to ARDS. Someone who has a positive blood culture is doing a number on their mean arterial pressure, making it super low. And of course, when you have, you know, a urinary problem, anytime we talk about urine we talk about the gi tract it's all about source control you want to make sure there's not a blockage whether it's going to be a renal stone whether we're talking about something in the biliary tree so when we talk about the urine we talk about the abdomen you know we definitely want to get source control on top of given antibiotics so what about this question why did i bring this up is because things are changing right is that you know we I was grown up on the Sears criterion. Of course, what does Sears stand for? And my joke is it's not a it's not a department store, everyone. You don't go buying lawnmowers there. It stands for severe, it stands for uh you mean a inflammatory response syndrome, an inflammatory response syndrome, you know? So when we talk about Sears, you know, the problem with it is that it's so sensitive that when we talk about, hey, could you have sepsis? If you use the Sears criteria, it seems like everyone has sepsis. So what is that criteria, everyone? There are four of them, and you need to have two of these four criteria in order to have Sears. So it's systemic inflammatory response syndrome. And look at this on the right here. The, the four criteria is always going to be uh, heart rate and respiratory rate as number one and two. And of course, there's a WBC count. And of course, there's fevers. Now, why is it so sensitive? Because, you know, if I told my friend Jeff, who's helped me out tonight, to run it up and down the stairs a couple of times, would, would Jeff have Sears? And the answer is, unfortunately, he would. He may be a little tachycardic, he'd be a little tachypnic, and that's all you need is two of those four criteria to have Sears. And, you know, when we talk about the other criteria, Sears are supposed to be a quick, hey, am I worried about sepsis criteria? You have to get some blood work. You need to get some blood work to check the WBC count. Is it high or low? You know, we and also the respiratory rate, sometimes it's hard to tell if they're tachypnic or not, especially if they're young or overweight or obese. So you could check an ABG. So now, now we're talking about blood work in the vein, blood work in the artery. This is supposed to be a quick criteria. And of course, the last thing is fevers, whether you're hyper or hypothermic. So it's really sensitive. Many of us can get serious. Now, sepsis was defined as Sears plus a presumed source of infection. So that's how we used to define sepsis. Severe sepsis was defined as target organ damage. And that's going back to the question, this patient definitely met the Sears criteria. He definitely had a presumed source of infection, that pneumonia, and he definitely had target organ damage. So based upon this criteria, he definitely had severe sepsis. Septic shock in the Sears criteria really is when you have a mean arterial pressure lower than what? That's right, 65, and you're probably going to be on some pressors, which this patient is not. So why are there so many criteria? And I haven't forgotten, I haven't mentioned the sepsis-3 guidelines yet, is because we're trying to find the perfect criteria that actually estimates mortality perfectly. If the criteria is too sensitive, like uh, the serious criteria overestimates mortality, if it's not sensitive enough, it's going to underestimate it. So we really want to find a criteria that estimates it just right. And remember, Sears and sepsis-3 are not definitions. You know, what is the definition of a definition? <laughs> I guess if you open a Webster's Dictionary, sepsis will be defined as life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by dysregulated host response to infection. That's the definition. We're talking about criteria. So now let's talk about that sepsis-3 guidelines and what, what's those criteria. They use what's called a SOFA score. 
What does SOFA stand for? It's sepsis related organ failure assessment. So basically there is some memorizing in here. So there are gonna be six organs and those six organs are gonna be the lungs. We use a PF ratio, the same things we use to kind of evaluate how severe the ARDS is. We use the Glasgow Coma Scale to evaluate mental status. We use the mean arterial pressure for thinking about the cardiovascular system, bilirubin for the liver, platelets for the bone marrow, and of course, urine output and serum creatinine to see how the kidneys are doing. And there are six organs and the score goes from zero to four. And if you have a SOFA score greater than two, wow, you got sepsis in the, the right clinical setting. And a SOFA score greater than two equals to a mortality rate of 10%. So you can imagine this patient had uh, problems with Glasgow Coma Scale. It was low. The PF ratio was low. Patient had decreased urine output. So you can imagine this mortality is already uh, getting close to almost 40 to 50%. So that's why how we use these different criteria. So septic shock, when we talk about the sepsis three guidelines, is going to be when we talk about having the sepsis and you know you're going to have a mean arterial pressure it's going to be less than 65 after fluid resuscitation and you're going to have an elevated lactic acid and most likely you're going to be on these pressors and we'll talk about what pressors i would think about when we talk about septic shock and i'll also talk about some fluids so going backwards and going back to that serious criteria well, we don't use it as much anymore, and it's not wrong if your hospital uses it, but we don't use the terminology steers anymore because it's too sensitive. And we don't use the terminology severe sepsis anymore because, you know, when you use that word severe sepsis, it kind of implies that there's good sepsis and no sepsis is good. So we're not using these terms anymore. It's either going to be septic or it's going to be septic shock. But for that question, everyone did a great job. So let's kind of move on and talk about question number two. You know, the new criteria for sepsis and uh, septic shock, you know, is based on something called the sequential organ failure assessment, the SOFA score. We just talked about it, but you know what? There's something called a quick SOFA score. So we use this quick SOFA, QSOFA, as a nice screening tool outside of the ICU, because if you're in the ICU, I'm not gonna screen you for sepsis, but if you're hanging out in the emergency department or on the floor, this is a nice quick screening tool to screen patients who are at risk for developing sepsis and put them in the right clinical setting, probably in the ICU. So my question is, what are the three components of this QSOFA? So this is gonna be one of those memorizing questions. You're gonna look at the different choices. There are answers such as respiratory rate and mental status, systolic blood pressure. There's leukocytosis or leukopenia. There's a lactic acid there. So for time's sake, because I wanna get as much teaching as I can get on there. So if you're thinking about something that's gonna be quick, hence the word QSOFA, it's probably gonna be something you do right at the bedside. It's not gonna take what? You know, time to get blood work. So I'll tell you one thing, anything that says, leukocytosis or checking a lactic acid, well, that's going to be wrong. This is going to take time. It's not going to be quick. So I'm going to say B is off the table, C is off the table, D is off the table, and wow, so is E. So what could be the quickest thing to do right at the bedside on the floor? Hey, are they tachypnic? What is their mental status using a Glasgow Coma Scale? And cardiovascularly, what can we use? checking the blood pressure, getting a systolic blood pressure, checking a mean arterial pressure. And of course that's gonna be low. 
And if you have two of these three components, hey, you need to move that patient up to an ICU setting because they're going to be at a very high risk for developing what? Sepsis. So the answer here is going to be what? A, the Q sofa. When we talk about, you know, the Q sofa, can't begin to tell you on the boards. These are great questions. I know there's some memorizing involved, but it's really going to help you identify sepsis early and get the right uh, intervention because it's very important to identify sepsis because mortality is going to start increasing the more there's delay in identifying sepsis. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's do this. What about this 59-year-old uh, hospitalized man as evaluated for fever and hypotension and altered mental status? He was admitted two days prior for an infected arm wound and treated with intravenous pepercillin, tazel, bactam. All of you folks are calling that zosin and some vancomycin. This morning, he developed new middle back pain and he's having difficulty urinating. His medical history is significant for type 2 diabetes and he was treated with metformin. On exam, he's febrile, blood pressure is low, he's tacky, he's tachypnic, and he's setting 98% on two liters nasal cannula. He's somewhat somnolent, but he is arousable, I guess that's good, and he's oriented uh, when awake. There is erythema surrounding the wound on his right upper arm with no drainage or tenderness. There is tenderness to percussion in the middle of his back in a palpable bladder. So they get some labs, his WBC count is 22,000, and they get a plasma glucose level of uh, 160, and they shot a chest x-ray. You know what, folks? It is unremarkable. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? So I'm looking at the choices. I mean, is the answer starting some insulin? Is it exploring the wound? Is it getting a CT of the spine? Is it getting an MRI of the spine? You know, I put this here that on the board exams, they, they want to make sure that we have just a, a good understanding of the basics. And in most cases, if someone has low blood pressure, what's probably a, a very common initial thing to do, give them some what? IV fluids. So the answer here is going to be what? A. And why did I put this here? Because I wanted to talk about some things. So, you know, when we talk about sepsis, there is some memorizing involved that if I asked you, well, how much fluid should you give someone if they're going to be hypotensive? Many of you are yelling out 30 mLs per kilogram of body weight. Now, right off the bat, I mean, does every patient with sepsis need that much fluid? And the answer is probably not. Once if you're in this combination of heart failure and sepsis, that's not going to do good. You know, in my opinion, I definitely feel the patients who are dehydrated and have sepsis will probably benefit from that much fluid. But I think we're going away from this mentality where we don't look at the patient and just give a memorized volume of 30 mLs per kilogram because there is some downside when you fluid overload these patients. But don't get me wrong, fluids is a, a good first initial thing to do, but sepsis shock is very individualized. And you definitely want to take all of those different components versus just memorizing a set number. Now, 
the question now becomes, what are you going to bolus this, this patient with? What are we going to give, you know? So definitely we think about crystalloids. That's going to be the standard, you know, compared to colloids. There's nothing wrong with giving colloids, but we probably give crystalloids first. And when I think about crystalloids, I kind of put them into two broad categories. On one side, I'll think of, you know, 0.9 and S. And many of you refer to 0.9 and S as what? Normal saline. What is one of my pet peeves? It's far from what? <laughs> Normal. I agree. And, and when now we're starting to use what the other category is, which is what we call a, a balanced electrolyte. We use a balanced electrolyte fluid. And why are we doing this is because with normal saline, you know, it's really the, the chloride load that we're giving these patients. Because in general, how much sodium is in normal saline? 154 milliequivalents. That's far from normal. So our normal sodium, as you know, already is somewhere between 130, 135, 140 or so. So we're really giving a lot of sodium. And guess how much chloride is in normal saline? Well, you're right. It's 154 milliequivalents. So when you're loading someone up with all that chloride, you know who hates chloride in the body? It's probably bicarb. So you're going to start dumping out this bicarb in the urine and get this hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis that really does a number on your kidneys and other parts in the body. So we're really going away from this normal saline and really using what we call balanced electrolyte. And the classic one we use commonly is lactated ringers. You know, I put a couple other examples down here that we don't commonly use. I put the brand names Plasmalite, Normalsol. But if you look at lactated ringers, it's electrolytes, which include potassium, calcium. You know, it's gonna be closer to what our serum electrolytes are, and the osmolarity of the fluid is closer to our serum osmolarity. So when someone comes in, you definitely wanna give some fluids, you know, then of course you may think about using pressors in some cases. So if we're talking about septic shock, everyone, um, what would probably be the presser of choice? Probably gonna be norepinephrine. And if I ask you what's going to be my second presser, it's probably going to be some kind of uh, vasopressin, you know, ADH attacking the V1 receptors in the arterioles. And if you ask me what is going to be the third presser, you know, even though some of you are yelling out epinephrine, phenylephrine, and oh, dopamine, but, you know, for me, I really feel that this would be a good place in septic shock and only septic shock to think about, you know, angiotensin 2. I mean, it does go by a brand name called Giapreza. And people are going to ask me, why did you mention this? Well, you know, look at this diagram here. Here's your mean arterial pressure. And of course, you want to bring it up. And I think the best way, in my opinion, to attack low blood pressure, of course, treat the underlying cause, is to attack it in many different ways. So I put pressors in three broad categories. Number one, catecholamines. Number two, vasopressin analogs. And number three, angiotensin two. You know, and so when you think about catecholamines, when I see patients on norepinephrine and epinephrine and phenylephrine I mean how many catecholamine receptors do we have and there's always these downside of giving so much catecholamine so of course what do we use we use vasopressin analogs and remember adh is a very potent vasoconstrictor at the v1 receptor and if you give pooled angiotensin 2 think of it this way angiotensin 2 in itself is a very potent arterial constrictor. And that angiotensin 2 will probably uh, go on to activate some aldosterone. And I'll probably make you retain a little sodium and who follows when you're retaining that sodium, probably a little water, you know, and you probably do want that when you're going to be 
uh, having low blood pressure from septic shock. So this is one way, one thing to consider when we talk about someone unfortunately who has very low blood pressure. So let's talk about this 35-year-old gentleman uh, with a history of ongoing alcohol use is in the ICU for treatment of severe pancreatitis and uh, subsequent ARDS. He is intubated and sedated on mechanical ventilation, and he's on a volume assist control, VAC. Assist means the patient could trigger the vent. The patients could trigger it through a pressure trigger or a flow trigger. And the controlled mode means that there's a set respiratory rate, so he's going to get some set breaths no matter what. And his tidal volumes are 6 mLs per kilogram of body weight. So that's kind of like that protective lung strategy, those low tidal volumes. Other medical problems include asthma since childhood, for which he uses an inhaled corticosteroid and long-acting beta-2 agonist as a combo inhaler, like an Advir, Dularis, Simbacort. Bronchodilator therapy has been discontinued in the hospital. And on day six of admission, he develops worsening low blood pressure. He also has decreased urine output, and he's getting more hypoxic. This can't be good. On exam, he's definitely hypotensive at 80 over 60. Heart rate is 120. The lung exam reveals crackles and wheezes, and his abdomen is very firm with decreased bowel sounds. And uh-oh, a mechanical vent pr- a question. Airway pressures on the mechanical ventilator have changed since the morning rounds. So... Here's the morning round values. Here's the evening values. And what are we looking at, everyone? Peak and plateau pressures. So this is going to be a classic time where someone's on a VAC mode and the vent is making all this noise and it's sounding off. And of course, what do you do? You know, if the patient's unstable, you may want to disconnect them and bag him on 100% to figure things out. But, you know, you can also check what's called a peak and plateau pressure, especially if they're going to be in a VAC mode, you know. And what does it show in the morning? Not too much. You know, the peak pressure is a smidge elevated, but nothing to jump up and down about. And the plateau is is not grossly elevated, you know. But what's happening now is that that peak really shot up and so did that plateau pressure. So what does that mean and what's going on with the patient? Well, let's figure it out. So a repeat chest x-ray is unchanged from the morning, which means that maybe nothing is really going on in the lungs that is new. It's just the same. Uh, They do a bedside ultrasound and they do something called sliding, looking for some sliding lung, which they see, they see sliding lung bilaterally. The most likely cause of these patients' findings on the vent that elevated, you know, peak and plateau pressure is going to be which of the following? Is it going to be bronchospasm, mucus plugging? Is it going to be abdominal compartment syndrome? Does the patient have a pneumo? Or is the patient just biting down on that ET tube? The way you pick the right answer is how do we interpret peak and plateau pressures? And I know that many people have frequently asked me this question, so I really wanted to put this in here. So when I think of, you know, having an elevated peak pressure, especially when we're in this VAC mode where you give a set tidal volume and all of a sudden you're trying to give that tidal volume and there's a pressure problem because there's either a problem with resistance or a problem with compliance of the lung. But how do you know if the pressure problem is resistance or compliance, you got to check a plateau. And a plateau is what is called an end inspiratory pause. So at the end of inspiration, 
Imagine a valve closing and it measures the pressure at the end of inspiration. So if it is a resistance problem, well, the peak would be high and the plateau would be relatively normal. If it's a compliance problem, then you have a high peak and high plateau like here. So when I'm looking at these choices, bronchospasm, having mucus in the endotracheal tube or in the lungs, or biting down on the ET tube, that's really a problem when we talk about resistance, resistance to airflow, you know, volume going into the lung. So they would have a high plateau, a high peak and a normal plateau. So it's not going to be A, B or E. It really comes down to C or D. Both of those can give you a high peak and a high plateau. But why is the answer C, abdominal compartment syndrome? Well, we said that there was an ultrasound that was done that showed, hey, patient had a sliding lung, which means no pneumo. And when you go back over here, you know, this is someone who has severe pancreatitis. Everyone can, people with severe pancreatitis develop abdominal compartment syndrome, especially if it's a necrotizing pancreatitis. The answer is what? Yes. So this is going to be just showing in a graphic on the y-axis is pressure. Time is going to be on the x. You know, the peak pressure is the pressure it takes to get the volume into the lung. Then when you check a plateau, it's an end inspiratory pause. And usually when you do this end inspiratory pause, some of the air is going to just kind of leak out. And if it leaks out, that's kind of a good thing. There's nice and compliant. If it doesn't, uh-oh, no, it'll be a high plateau. And then the pressure will go all the way down to what you have left in the lung, which is the positive end expiratory pressure, which is the beep. And here is just kind of a nice breaking down. What is the high peak and low normal plateau pressures? Resistance, I gave a differential here. Mucus plug, bronchospasm, ET tube is blocked. Or what happens when you have a high peak and high plateau, and I put down ARDS, pneumothorax, you know, abdominal compartment syndrome, things that we talked about already. And of course, well, how do you check for abdominal compartment syndrome? Of course, you get that bladder pressure, and that's going to be the answer on the board exams. But remember, if the patient really is in some date, they're bucking the vent, they're fighting, that bladder pressure could be, you know, falsely elevated quite easily. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.